0: Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carlo O'Dell. I'm the CEO of APQC, and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world, and today I get to talk to Dr. Sherry Turkle. I mean, as you know, if you follow this series, I'm very intrigued and excited and alarmed about how central our mobile devices are becoming to our lives. They are, in fact, central to the whole uh, area of knowledge sharing in organizations and have had a lot of wonderful implications for us, but also they have a dark side. If you want to read a little bit more about that, I actually did a post recently called Smart Machines. Could this end badly for us? Uh, Because as these devices become smarter and more responsive, I'm afraid that our love affair with them is only going to deepen, and there may be implications to that that we are not yet aware of or prepared to deal with. So, Fortunately, there are people much more Uh, clear on this than I am, and Sherry is one of them. She spent the last 30 years studying the psychology of people's relationships with technology, especially their digital devices and life on the screen. And she's also a licensed clinical psychologist, so when this interview's over, I may ask for some personal advice. Um, She's the founder and director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self, the author of five books, and in her new book, Reclaiming Conversation. Sherry's going to exam, examines how smartphones and social media have crowded out real conversation. And I loved it, Sherry, because it really uh, resonated with me and what I've seen in my own life. And I have to be so careful. So everybody else calls on you as the maven to when we want to discuss how these digital lives, or I mean, these digital, our digital life is shaping our real life for good and for ill. And I've been a fan of yours since 2010. When I saw you in the PBS series Digital Nation. So welcome, Sherry. And you say in your book that people would rather text than talk. They'd rather shock themselves and be bored or be alone for 15 minutes, and they never want to be disconnected. I mean, it's really true. So what's going on with us and our devices?
1: Well, I think that, first of all, thank you for inviting me. This is just wonderful to have this conversation. Um, uh, I, I think that all that you point to, Uh, is true and shows our vulnerability, Um, our vulnerability to what our, just take our phones to what our phones offer us. And I think they offer us three promises as though they're kind of gifts from a benevolent genie is one way to think about it. First of all, that we'll never be bored. Uh, Second, that we can put our attention wherever we want it to be. Third, that we will always be heard. The idea that we can always get our opinions out you know, on Twitter, on social media. And then beyond those promises it is a fourth thing that, that, that I think makes the idea of communicating with these devices so compelling is that if we use them to communicate, you can edit, you can retouch, you can edit how you present yourself until to your eyes you're perfect. And in, I think that's what makes... Um, Communicating through screens uh, where you can edit the self. so compelling, and why people do find ways around conversation.
0: You're making me—I'll do a, a sort of a divulge something here. I mean, when I, I notice, I know what you mean. In many ways, even when I was preparing some of the questions we're going to talk about today, I thought, "Oh, well, this show Sherry how smart I am? Let's see if she'll understand that I read her stuff." Uh, we all use that opportunity to to edit, and and it's it's very um, in, in, you know captivating because real life is messy and real relationships are messy.
1: Yes. Uh, I Actually, that, a, oh, okay. go ahead. Well, there, there's a I'm, I'm interrupting because I just I, there's a there's a young man I interviewed who who captures that so perfectly when I ask him what's wrong with conversation because he's telling me how he'd rather text than talk and he says to me. What's wrong with conversation? I'll tell you what's wrong with conversation. It takes place in real time, and you can't control what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And that kind of captures it. You know, you have to, you have to be your imperfect self, your unedited self. Uh, and it could take too long. You know, people are very worried about their time, both in personal life and on the job, and they have the fantasy that if they keep everything on the screen, they can talk communicate just the amount they want to communicate. They can keep Mm -hmm. their life under control. Well, you brought up a young man. You know, some of your stories about children and
0: teens were really poignant to me. Can you share a a few more of those? Because I think many of us have children and do worry about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, the most poignant are the children who can't get their parents' attention. Because what I found in my field work is that at breakfast, at dinner, on the playground, you know, children are basically asking for their parents' attention. And and their parents are uh, are elsewhere. You know, the parents are on the phone. And one boy says to me, you know, one 14-year-old, he says, I want to raise my children not the way my parents raised me. You know, that's with cell phones at meals and, you know, smartphones while they're, even while they're watching television together. Not the way my parents raised me, but the way my parents think they raised me. Because he says he, <laughs> his parents think they're raising him in a house with conversation and with kind of a, sense of family community and that was so poignant to me that, that, that it's going to be our, the, the children of this generation who are so preoccupied on their phones that I think are our hope to maybe bring us back to conversation and the kids I interview talk about what's on their phones they don't talk to each other and there's a really high cost to that because you know it's in conversation with each other face-to-face uh, that empathy is born that intimacy is born and there's a result Uh, To all this, which is that for teenagers, um, there's been a forty percent decline in all the ways we can measure empathy among college students in the past twenty years. Forty percent—that's not good. What I mean,
0: suppose we can't fix this, Sherry. You know, maybe we can't unring this bell. What What are the implications? Can you look into that dark crystal ball
1: and what's
0: this going to be like for us?
1: Well, before I talk about what the dark crystal ball shows. Let me just say that to this crisis in empathy, I really say that conversation is the talking cure because only five days at a device-free camp for children, mm-hmm. and studies are showing that the empathy levels that were depressed at the beginning of camp start to come back. And a capacity for solitude and being able to be sort of by yourself, alone, uh, contained and 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 feeling good about yourself comes back too. One of the important findings of my book is that you you need to be able to be alone in order to have a capacity for conversation, to have a capacity for relationship. And you know our children are just as terrified of being alone, uh, away from the stimulation of the screen, as they are nervous about conversation. But you know before we talk about the The negative future ahead is there's a very positive future if we realize our vulnerability to these devices, put them down, and start talking to our children. But of course, the negative device, the negative, excuse me, let me start again. Um, But of course, the the negative implications are children who don't have empathic and relational capacity um, because they really haven't practiced. No one's been talking to them.
0: Now, none of us want that for our kids, and so what? What can we do to help regain so, that
1: part of conversation? Well, you know, it's very, um, it's very. I always get very. Let me start again. I always get very frustrated when people talk about being addicted to their phones, because in fact, um, this isn't like a heroin addiction. This is like a bad habit that we've gotten into with our phones, where we have to start getting into good habits. Which means rules, you know, new rules for classrooms. You know, no devices in classrooms. New rules for meetings, no devices in meetings. I mean, I, I, I go to meetings all the time where people sit down and they take out their phones and they start doing their email, and that's a meeting. No phones at meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and at breakfast in the kitchen, in the dining room, and in the car. In terms of a family situation, those places should be sacred spaces for conversation. Those places should be device free.
0: Mm-hmm. You'll also digest better. I'm convinced. Of it. <laughs> yeah, and that's not that hard. I mean, most of us are. You're a psychologist. You know this. That are while we like to think we are, uh, you know, these, uh, we have free will. In truth, in truth, is our situation determines our behavior far more than we like to admit. And so, if we just set up the circumstances, we will behave in almost any way that the circumstances tell us to. And if you don't bring the darn phone to the meeting, you're not going to be on email. Period. You don't have chocolate yeah, cookies in the middle of the table, you're not going to eat them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really interesting that uh, companies and families that have just started to say, you know, uh, these are device-free spaces. This is a meeting where we don't we, do, we don't text during this meeting. We, we're with each other, you know, and people grumble for a while. But then they get used to what they had before, which are meetings where people are paying attention to each other. Mm-hmm. And that, after all, is what you're meeting for. I think it's very dramatic what's happening in college classes, because five years ago when I would poll the MIT and Harvard faculty about this, professors would say stuff like, I'm not my student's nanny. I don't want to be their babysitter. Whatever they want to do, that's fine. I don't want to take away their phones and be their nanny. But, you know, we've discovered that our students are shopping shopping and are distracted, and <laughs> they're not with us. They're not listening during class. And now professors are just putting a little basket for the phones when students come in and saying that's where the phone goes, and now class begins. So, you know, we can, we can develop new habits of how we use this technology so that we can, you know, appreciate all of its marvels and get all of its advantages and not be interrupting each other and our attention to each other and to our children our colleagues so that we really can't get any work done and we can't get our relational work done. We can't get our intimacies and our empathy done either.
0: Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I I can't help but think one or two steps away from the dinner table, which is here at work. And he talked about leaving our devices out of meetings. So many of us now work um, alone. You know, we're, when we're part of virtual teams of uh, have you thought about that, sherry what's that like for us to know each other virtually in and almost no other way? Can you extrapolate from you know the work you've done with life on the screen to what that might be for us in in organizations and what the implications
1: of that might be? Well, you know we're in that world now where many of our many of the companies I studied uh supervisors had never had never in seen in person the people they were supervising. Teammates had not seen each other uh, except uh, virtually. So, you know, we're in that world now, and my point is that is that we shouldn't glamorize that world to the point where when we have the opportunity to be together, we don't even take it, because that's what I'm seeing. My work is not a critique of when you need to work in a global team, that you do the best you can, you use video conferencing, you use you know, you know, whatever is available to you, and you make do. But I see people literally closing down local teams, because somehow they've gotten into a mode of thinking where doing everything virtually is better, more efficient, uh, just as good, maybe better, you know, and... And that's what needs to be reexamined, is that we've lost our respect for the power of the face-to-face when all the research points in the opposite direction. Uh, I have a colleague, Ben Weber, who studies um, conversation in the workplace, and he's, he's studied how the degree to which conversation is good for the bottom line, whether it's in a bank or whether it's in a programming shop. Um, employees who are allowed to talk together face-to-face just do better work and are more productive than those who are just meeting virtually. I, so, yeah, uh,
0: we know that from just, the whole area of sharing knowledge that it, it happens when people are, are face-to-face or within 100 yards of each other anyway and have the opportunity to, to find out things that they didn't necessarily even know that they
1: didn't know. Exactly. It's a little bit like the discussion of what's lost when you don't have library stacks and you don't have, you know, shelves where you're just kind of walking around in the library and looking at books. You know, when you do that, you sort of see books that you didn't know you were looking for. And that's harder to do when you're doing, when you're typing in, you know, names into a card catalog and you're getting books back. Um, The randomness and the serendipity and the, somebody making a comment and sort of understanding how your colleagues are thinking and feeling from being with them. So the point is more when I talk about claiming conversation, it's it's not about imagining a rosy, distant past where everything was perfect. It's about recognizing the power of what you get through conversation so that we don't sort of give it away and, and forget about it as though it's something we don't need anymore. And I see a lot of that. I see a lot of that giving it away as though it's something we don't need anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency to look at only one bottom line when you're saying what does travel cost us in time, and the other more uh, intangible bottom line, which is what is gained by being together. So, despite Sherry, despite the fact that we had to have this conversation over the telephone. I thought it was fabulous, and I think those of us who were committed to finding ways to connect in, in meaningful ways and to let real uh, knowledge flow um, couldn't agree with you more. So thank you for raising our awareness and hopefully giving us the tools to change our behavior to want a real connection and for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. And if the others would like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. And thank you for listening, and everyone have a great day.